This program is presented by Birch Gold Group, the precious metal IRA specialists. Good morning. In today's headlines, an update in the killing of four University of Idaho students. Police arrested a suspect Friday and they say they think they have their man. Parts of Northern California flood on New Year's Eve. We have more on the deluge the state faced over the weekend. Australia joined other countries to impose restrictions on Chinese travelers and Morocco becomes the first country to ban arrivals from China. We take a look at the V-Safe COVID vaccine safety monitoring system. An attorney for those allegedly injured by the vaccine says it has some surprising numbers and omissions. And Brazil swears in a new president. Leftist leader Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has pledged to overhaul previous policies and restore the country. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Happy New Year, everybody. Today's Monday, January 2nd. We're starting off today and the year with an update on the unsolved murders of four Idaho University students. Authorities arrested a suspect on Friday. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what officials are saying about the case and a possible, and a possible motive. Brian Koberger is a 28-year-old studying criminal justice at Washington State University. The police department believes that the person we have in custody, which would be Koberger, is the one who is responsible for these crimes. Authorities say Pennsylvania State Police took him into custody early Friday morning at his parents' home. The university says Koberger completed his first semester in early December, suggesting he remained on campus for weeks just 10 miles away from the crime scene across the Idaho state line before returning to Pennsylvania. Koberger's defense attorney said Saturday he plans to waive an extradition hearing so he can be quickly brought to Idaho to face murder charges. Investigators asked anyone that knows Koberger to call a tip line and provide information after his arrest. Police received about 400 phone calls within the first hour after asking for the public's help. The slain University of Idaho students, three female and one male, were found in an off-campus house on November 13th. They were stabbed multiple times. Police Chief James Fry in Moscow, Idaho, says the town of 25,000 remains shaken by the murders. And no arrest will ever bring back these young students. However, we do believe justice will be found through the criminal process. Koberger's attorney released a statement reminding that he should be presumed innocent until proven otherwise and not tried in the court of public opinion. Koberger's family says they will promote his presumption of innocence and will continue to let the legal process unfold while showing love and support. Federal and state investigators are combing through Koberger's background, financial records, and electronic communications as they work to identify a motive and build the case. Retired FBI profiler Kathy Canning Mello had this to say about a possible motive. He wanted it to be horrific. He wanted to be a violent attack against these women. Why? Because they were beautiful, vibrant, confident women. And he has, from what we understand now, difficulty having sexual relationships with these type of women. And that's what I'm saying. They, they've become proxies for his distaste or dis disgust and hatred against young, beautiful women. Koberger is being held without bond. 
The affidavit for four charges of first-degree murder will remain sealed until he is returned to Idaho. He is also charged with felony burglary. His extradition hearing is scheduled for Tuesday. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. California had a wet start to the new year. Parts of the state were flooded over the weekend. Heavy rain caused power outages, road closures, and at least two rivers to spill over. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the deluge. A powerful weather system called an atmospheric river brought heavy rain to parts of Northern California on New Year's Eve. Atmospheric rivers are columns in the atmosphere that can carry moisture thousands of miles. Heavy flooding partially submerged cars in San Francisco on Saturday. The storm caused two levees to break down near Sacramento, flooding roads and fields. Spillover from the Cosumnes River forced the closure of Highway 99 south of Elk Grove. Highway 101 was temporarily closed in both directions in South San Francisco Saturday. Highway 50 and Interstate 80 also had to be partially shut down temporarily. Officials reported at least two storm-related deaths. One person was found inside a completely submerged vehicle in southern Sacramento County, and another struck by a fallen tree at a state park in Santa Cruz. The storm forced some residents out of their homes on New Year's Eve after evacuation orders were issued. Others had to be rescued from their cars. Around 235,000 homes and businesses were without electricity in California and Nevada on Sunday. On the other side of the coin, the moisture could bring some relief for drought-stricken areas. 2022 started out with California's driest beginning to the year on record. It's still not clear how much of a dent the storm will make on drought conditions. Over 15 million people from the West Coast to Wisconsin were under winter weather alerts Sunday. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A power outage on a Ferris wheel at Orlando's Icon Park stranded over 60 people for hours on New Year's Eve. Firefighters were called to the scene and proceeded with rescue attempts. Crews responded to power failure reports at the Orlando wheel a bit after 6 p.m. Firefighters had to move the wheel manually to reach each pod and rescue the riders. All 62 of the riders are safe and no injuries were reported. The Orlando wheel is 400 feet tall and it takes 18 minutes to complete the ride. It opened in 2015. Australia announced Sunday that travelers from China will have to provide a negative COVID-19 test beginning January 5th. Australia joins a growing number of nations that have implemented restrictions after the COVID surge in China. Uh, but the World Health Organization has pointed to the lack of comprehensive information about the situation in China, a fast evolving situation. That's why they've described these measures, which have been taken by a wide range of countries across Asia, North America and Europe, as understand. Travelers from China to Australia will need to submit a negative COVID-19 test from January 5th. The UK and US will require a pre-departure negative COVID-19 test from passengers from China as of January 5th. And France will require the same from January 1st. India and Canada have similar restrictions. And Morocco will impose a ban on people arriving from China, whatever their nationality, from January 3rd to avert any new wave of coronavirus infections. That's according to an announcement from the country's foreign ministry. Mm, that's a big decision. Thousands of tourists visit Morocco from China every year. And according to the CDC's COVID-19 vaccine safety system called VSAFE, nearly 8% of participants reported needing medical care during the monitored period. Entities Daniel Monahan has more on that. 
It took two lawsuits and over a year before the CDC agreed to release data from its vSafe program. The vSafe system was designed to assess the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine. It has over 10 million individuals that use the system who do periodic health check-ins. Attorney Aaron Siri says vSafe is superior to VERS because it's able to calculate a rate for adverse events. If 200,000 people report to vSafe that they have myocarditis and there are 10 million people, you can figure out a 2% rate of myocarditis. vSafe also has a much higher participation rate than a clinical trial. The clinical trial for Pfizer had 30,000 participants compared to vSafe's 10 million. Moreover, Siri points out that the data from vSafe has not been filtered through any pharmaceutical company. And just like a clinical trial, vSafe relies on asking participants to provide information about their experience after the shot. vSafe gathers data from two categories, symptoms and health impact. Users can report symptoms in a check-the-box manner, things like fever, chills, pain, but some symptoms are missing. Pericarditis, myocarditis, transverse myelitis. So why the omission? One could theorize that the CDC didn't know that the vaccine could cause these issues when it rolled out vSafe in December 2020. But that's not the case. In October 2020, the CDC gave a presentation where it lists adverse events of special interest. That list included pericarditis, myocarditis, transverse myelitis, and seizures. But the CDC did not include these items which it knew were of special interest. The second vSafe category is health impact. Users reported data every week for the first six weeks and then at week 12, 24, and 52. The check-the-box options included being unable to work or unable to do normal daily activities and whether health care was required. Siri sees one of vSafe's biggest faults here. You would imagine they would have set a threshold above which they would have said, okay, we got to pull the plug on the shot. Whether that be 1 in 500 or 1 in 100 needing medical attention, about 800,000 people out of around 10 million people in vSafe required medical care. 7.7%, that is 1 in 13 people. Yet the CDC did not pull the shot. 25% of those people needed emergency room care or uh, were hospitalized and another 48% sought urgent care. Siri says that the CDC previously only published information about the medical care rate in the first week after vaccination, which was around 0.3%. Meanwhile, the backlog of claims by people who alleged they've been injured from the COVID-19 vaccine rose from 2,300 a year ago to now more than 7,500. The CDC maintains that COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective. The vSafe data was collected for up to a year after vaccination. The reported health issues may or may not have been the result of the COVID vaccination. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Going abroad now, Lula da Silva was sworn in as Brazil's president on Sunday. He vowed a drastic change, of course, from that of the previous administration. Here's NTD's Costa Menes with more. In his inauguration speech, Lula vowed to restore the country. His main goals, he said, are to reverse a lot of the policies implemented by Brazil's previous president, Bolsonaro. In the fight for the good of Brazil, we will use the weapons that our adversaries fear the most, the truth that prevails over the lies, the hope that conquers fear, and the love that defeats hatred. Long live Brazil, and long live the Brazilian people. He was cheered on by thousands of his followers, many wearing communist symbols on their clothing. 
developing uh, democracy. Democracy is lived by the people, and so we are all here to show that democracy is not going to die and we will be rebuilding it. Lula described Bolsonaro's government as one of the worst periods in Brazilian history, calling the last few years an era of shadows, doubts and a lot of suffering. After the swearing-in, Lula drove in an open-top Rolls-Royce to the Planalto Palace, where he walked up its ramp with his wife. He was then handed the presidential sash, a hugely symbolic act in Brazil, by a garbage collector. Lula was previously sentenced to over nine years in prison on charges for corruption and money laundering in 2017. The charges were later annulled in a controversial ruling. His predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro, has left Brazil for the U.S. after refusing to concede. He has repeatedly hinted at election fraud in last October's election. Cost MNS, NTD News. Still to come, a UK climate activist group is temporarily changing their strategy. They will stop disruptive disobedience in favor of a new approach to protesting. And North Korea is looking to expand its nuclear arsenal. Kim Jong-un gives orders to produce intercontinental ballistic missiles capable of reaching the U.S. Stay tuned for more on that right here on NTD Good Morning. Welcome back. An armed attack broke out at a prison in the northern Mexican border city of Juarez. At least 14 people died. That's according to Mexican authorities. Among those who died in the attack were 10 security personnel and four inmates. 13 others were hurt and over 20 inmates escaped, according to a statement by the Chihuahua state prosecutor. It was not immediately clear who carried out the attack. According to witness reports, the attackers wore black outfits and were better armed than the police. Initial investigators found the attackers arrived at the prison in armored vehicles at around 7 a.m. local time. Minutes earlier, authorities had reported a nearby attack against municipal police. After a chase, four men were captured and a truck was seized. In a different part of the city, two more drivers died in an armed conflict later in the day. It's unclear whether the three incidents were related. The UK division of the climate change activist group Extinction Rebellion says they are changing their approach to protesting. The group will temporarily move away from public disruption as their primary tactic, saying such methods have not achieved their desired effects. In response to the group's protests, Britain's conservative government toughened police powers in disruptive protests and increased penalties for obstructing roads, which can now involve a prison sentence. The group says it will now focus on broadening its support with actions such as getting 100,000 people to surround the Houses of Parliament in London on April 21st. In the four years since the group formed, it has attracted both praise and criticism, with demonstrations designed to be disruptive. The protests often led to mass arrests while succeeding in snarling road and port traffic. And global supply chain issues are making it harder to supply critical drugs to patients who need them. And when a young girl couldn't get the leukemia treatment she needed, her mother sprang into action. Abby Bray was a healthy little girl in Tampa, Florida, when one month after her ninth birthday, troubling symptoms. She said, it feels like there's knives in my bones. After her pediatrician ran some tests, a phone call to her parents, Laura and Mike. There's a bed waiting for her at St. Joe's Pediatric Oncology Unit. Pack a bag, 
plan to stay, get there immediately. Abby had acute lymphoblastic leukemia. To save her life, she would need a rigorous regimen of chemotherapy, including a drug called Irwinase. But then... A few months into treatment, we were told, okay, you have to go home, you can't get this medicine today, it's, it's a shortage. Abby wanted answers. She knew she needed to take all of her medicine. Like, what happens now? Does this mean I die? That's when Laura sprung into action, assembling a group of friends called Abby's Angels. She made a list of children's hospitals in the U.S., and everyone pitched in to make phone calls. Just a few hours later, we had gone through it, and we, we found some medicines. One of my friends made the call. Over the next nine months, Laura needed to step in again to get two other drugs the hospital couldn't find because of shortages. Never once did I contemplate that I would also have to be navigating the largest global supply chain in the world in order to keep her alive. Laura is a business school professor, and so she had the skills to do that. But she knew other families weren't so fortunate. It really haunted me. A study last year showing that of 19 essential agents to treat cancer in children, 74% had experienced one or more shortages since 2016. Pediatric oncologist Dr. Yoram Ungaru says there are several reasons for the shortages, including... When you look at the drugs overwhelmingly that are in short supply, they are not your blockbuster drugs. They are not the drugs that pharmaceutical companies generate huge profits from. So Laura took matters into her own hands, forming Angels for Change, raising about half a million dollars, she says, in less than three years to pay a small drug manufacturer to make essential drugs and offer them up to any hospital that needs them. Since May, they've been accessed more than half a million times for patients all over the U.S. Earning praise from experts. If you just look at what her organization has accomplished in the past few years, I think it speaks for itself. And there's something to say about that adage, hell hath no fury like an angry mama bear. This mama bear navigating the global supply chain for children all over the country with cancer. Shen Yun gave five performances in Boston over the weekend. One audience member has seen Shen Yun perform ten times. Find out what he had to say. Welcome back. Shen Yun's 2023 season is set to cover 180 cities across five continents. Over the weekend, Shen Yun gave five performances in Boston. Audiences are calling it a performance that elevates the spirit. Richard Sweat, former congressman and the former U.S. ambassador to Denmark, is among the many who saw Shen Yun in Boston on December 28th. This is maybe the 10th performance that I've been to. I've seen it in Washington. I've seen it in Boston. Um, I think this is my third time in Boston. I've seen five or six in, in uh, Washington, D.C. He says each performance is special. The story changes. There are new adventures and new depictions, and uh, the dancers are marvelous. And uh, the music is uh, stunningly beautiful, and uh, it's just a, a joy to be at. 
It's truly a gift that you're sharing this magnificent performance. All of these young people are so extraordinary. They're, they're so uh, athletic and skilled and precise in their expressions and their movements. So graceful, so beautiful. Really, really glad I made it. Joan Quinn Eastman is a producer and former broadcaster. She says she's been wanting to see Shen Yun for years. And I'm so happy that I finally did. Um, I, I find it tremendously moving, uh, very enriching. Culture actually causes your brain to work on a higher level, and that's one of the biggest reasons that it's so important and valuable. So really appreciate you sharing your culture. The colors, the music, the synchronicity, the precision with which all the dancers move is truly phenomenal. Uh, the level of skill is astonishing, and it's a wonderful example of how people can realize their potential. Eastman called the show more than just a performance. It's universal spiritual messaging. We're all connected by spirit. We're connected by love. We're connected by faith. Faith is what distinguishes us from animals. It's what establishes us as we're actually spiritual beings having a human experience. And this is a way of elevating your spirit seeing this magnificent show. Xin Yun Performing Arts takes the stage with a mission to revive the beauty and goodness of Chinese culture from before communism. Audience members say the show shares an important message for society. We are all connected, that we must have faith and rise above our fears and stand fearlessly for what we believe in. And in this particular case, it's to stand against communism and stand for freedom. And it's a message that the United States can really take to heart right now and learn from what's happened in China. I think they're very talented. I think that uh, they inspire the people who are watching. And uh, it's no, no surprise that there are eight troops with 100 people each traveling the world over to bring this message to the world. It's, it's a wonderful message. The message of hope, the message of uh, community, the message of love and loyalty. I mean, these are all uh, very good qualities that uh, we need to see more of in this world. NTD News, Boston. Soaring through the air over South Miami, a paraglider spots a woman in a dire situation. She drove her car in an alligator-infested canal and was in imminent danger. Now the glider has no choice but to execute an emergency landing and save the woman. Sounds like a scene from a James Bond movie, but it isn't. Here's that story. She called me an angel, (laughs) but uh, it's not me. It was God saving her. I was just the instrument. Cristiano Piquet, a Miami realtor and father of two, was paragliding one Sunday, scouting for real estate before church, when he spotted an alligator in the canal below. Looking closer, he noticed a car submerged in the water, and a woman in distress was clinging to it. I realized that uh, it was an emergency, and um, I had no choice but uh, land and help that woman. The canal is about six feet below the normal uh, ground so the neighbors could not see the car in the canal so nobody could see uh, her Um, and I was her only hope actually. It was a dangerous landing but that woman was you know she was uh, drowning so I had to land and help her and thank God um, I landed safely and we were able to help her. Even though the fabric wings of Piquet's glider buckled in the wind, the team nailed a perfect landing. They unclipped from the gear and ran over to the canal. You need help. Oh my God, I fell with my car in 
A neighbor across the canal brought a rope. That woman tried to get a shortcut. No, she, she thought that she would get a shortcut going through that uh, canal and she ended up inside the canal. 64-year-old Marcia Fuste was in a state of shock and did not want to let go of the car. She had spent about 12 hours in the cold water. After being instructed several times, she finally loosened her grip and was pulled to safety. God cares about each and every life. Cristiano's selfless deed was soon rewarded in an unexpected way. I do believe that you, you plant uh, good things, you're going to get good things back. I, I, I just wanted to help that woman. But in the end, that uh, generated a great uh, exposure for me and my company. And people now know that I do real estate in Miami, that I, that I sell properties in Miami, and uh, more businesses are coming out of this. So God definitely helped me too. Whew, luckily for that woman, that man was in the right place at the right time. I was thinking the same thing, but she did wait 12 hours. Wow. Poor woman. Anyway, that's it from Kevin Hogan and me for today. Don't forget to write us at goodmorning at ntd.com. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee.